Okay, so today we wrap up this three-part mini-series on what we've entitled Riding Dirty. And in the first week we learned that we can't be riding dirty. And what does that mean? Well, riding dirty essentially is this thing where we're rolling down this road of life in this happy little hipster yellow car up here. We're obeying all the traffic rules. All our lights are working, so the chances are we will not get pulled over. But if we do, we're going to be in some trouble because we're riding dirty. We've got some of those things going on in our vehicle, some of these hidden forms of illegality that will cause consequences for us. And that's basically what Paul's telling us, is that if we're rolling down the path of life, professing a faith, but we've got these hidden habitual sins, this unrepentant sin in our life, then we're guilty of riding dirty, and there's consequences for that. And Paul gives us two of them. Last week he talked about the first one. He told us how there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that was pretty sobering. And this, this week he hits the second consequence, as Paul writes, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the first consequence, we don't go to heaven. The second consequence, there's wrath, God's wrath that comes upon us. So this is taken together very sobering. But just like last week, and just like the song we sang before the message today, Remembrance, there's so much grace, there's so much encouragement, there's so much power here And that's why I want to begin by reminding us of three things that we've learned throughout this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. First, that God desires to be in a relationship with his beloved children. That means we are loved. God loves us. That's a huge thing to hold on to. Second, if we are in a relationship with God, then we are on that well-lighted, narrow path becoming more holy. So we are walking with him. But if not, we're still on that wide, dark path. So we're on one path or the other. There's no middle ground. And that's important for us to remind ourselves of because we love to play in the middle ground. We love to profess a faith but still operate as though we live on that wide, dark path. And then third, throughout our lives, we are progressing towards something. We're moving towards this thing we call eternity. If we're on the wide path, now we're progressing toward an eternity of destruction, eternal destruction. That is a fire pit of never-ending torment and misery. But if we're on that narrow path, we're progressing towards an eternity in God's kingdom, a holy city of never-ending glory. And then last week we saw how this dichotomy here, it provides a test for us. Because if we find that we're not progressing in holiness, then it's one of two things. Either we're born again, and we're grieving the Holy Spirit on that narrow path, so we are not progressing, or we're still on that wide, dark path, and we've actually never been born again. So if you missed that sermon last week, go back and check that out. You can find it online. But here's the thing. If this is the truth of the gospel message, and the gospel message is preached in churches throughout the world 
all day, every day on Sundays, right? If that's true, then why is it that so many people seem to ignore this message? Why is it that so many people who profess a faith are content not progressing in holiness? Why are they content not getting engaged in training in a pillar? When we did Pillars 1.0, we saw some people jump in, and we saw them grow and progress in holiness, and we saw the church built up and strengthened, but we didn't have everybody involved. So as we move to 2.0, it's our hope that we will all continue to strive to grow in holiness. But there's got to be a reason people ignore it. There's got to be a reason. And that's what Paul tells us today. He starts out by showing us the main reason why people seem to ignore the gospel message. He writes, let no one deceive you with empty words. So that's the source of the problem. According to Paul, we get deceived by empty words. We're deceived by this notion that we don't have time to do a pillar, or that there's other things that are more important in our lives. Now this word deceive means to beguile, which is to be basically be engaged in underhanded charm, or to be misled. Of course, this is not a new thing at all. We run across deception in the very opening lines of Scripture when the devil tempted Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. And this first recorded deception unfolds, when we look at it, it unfolds just like it happens today. It starts by planting seeds of doubt. Satan asks, did God really say that? Did he actually say, you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve responded, we may eat of the fruit in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. We can't even touch it or we'll die. To which the serpent responded, you will not surely die. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So you see, deceit is the work of the devil and his minions, and they're exceptional at their craft. They beguile or use underhanded charm to mislead us, making things look delightful and desirable. But their words are actually empty, or in the original language, devoid of truth, meaning they're lies. They're counter to God, who is the author of truth. So they're useless. They're unprofitable words. There's nothing beneficial in them at all. Just like those words the serpent used in the garden when he said, you will not surely die, which is clearly a lie because death for all of us is the consequence of sin. And so you can see that the devil's tactic is to speak lightly of sin as if it is of little consequence. What does it hurt to check out a little pornography? It's no big deal. It makes you happy. Go for it. So what if you lust after someone else's spouse? It's not like you committed the physical act of adultery. Look, everyone's doing it. Besides, Jesus already died for your sins, so you're good. Go have some fun. Or even more cunning. You were just born that way. You can't help it if you have a bad temper. After all, 
We can give you a diagnosis. You're that way because you have a condition. You have a disorder. You're predisposed to anger. So that means you can't be held accountable for your violent outbursts. That's the argument lawyers use whenever they defend those who murder others in fits of rage. Do you see how it undermines discipline and it blurs right from wrong? Undercutting accountability because it's genetic. Or hey, after all you went through growing up, that's why you're a violent person. You can't be held responsible for your actions now. It's not your fault. Or those empty words devoid of truth, touting human achievement. Oh, how we're all so guilty of this. Pushing our children to excel at all costs in sports, academics, music, you name it. Directly or indirectly conveying to them that the only way for them to make their parents proud is to go be a doctor or a lawyer someday. So they can make lots of money. Shows you're a success now. Someone to be proud of. Just think about what that does to our kids. Man, that hits hard, doesn't it? Those are the voices that define our culture in 2023. And it's all because we've been deceived by empty words. Now to be clear, all that stuff that happened to us in our past when we were growing up, particularly if we had a tough childhood, it's all absolutely true. It's real, and it might not have been our fault. Look, trauma can make an absolute wreck of our lives. So many people live with un- imaginable trauma. So this is in no way by Paul to make some kind of attempt to dismiss the terrible stuff that's happened to so many of us, as though somehow it's not our fault. It's absolutely not our fault, but it happened to us. And what he's showing us is that that's the cost of sin. It's all nasty, foul, repulsive stuff. But make no mistake about it, it is all as a result of sin. And that's why it's important for us to understand what happens whenever we're deceived by empty words. Empty words are the underlying problem. And when it, whenever we're deceived by them, there's this pervasive and devastating consequence to sin. We hit this a few chapters ago in this letter, but it's a helpful reminder of how sin impacts us. First, there is our own sin, the sin that we do. And whenever we sin, there's usually a consequence, some form of suffering that we particularly endure. Second, the sins of others. How many of us, our lives have been impacted by other people sinning around us and we bear those consequences? That's why you can't say checking out pornography has no consequences because it absolutely impacts the human trafficking world out there. And look at the impact that has on so many people because of our little cheap thrills we want and our own little sin. And then there's third, generational sin. The sins of our fathers. Three, four generations ago of people with bad tempers, and they pass that along from generation to generation. And we all deal with the consequence of this sin. And Paul taught us that these are all a result of three main things. The passions of our flesh, the original sin that we all bear inside of us, the course of the world, all the sin that happens around us in our everyday ordinary life, and the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil. So we have it coming at us from all sides. 
It's why we're depraved apart from Christ. It's why Paul declared in chapter 2 of this letter that we were by nature children of wrath. And it's because we're deceived by empty words. That's the truth of our condition apart from Christ that Paul wants us to know. And then Paul goes on to write, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So what are the these things he's talking about? Well, Paul's referring to all these things that we do when we're riding dirty. All that stuff we've been talking about for the past two weeks up there in orange font. All those things that we tend to cover up. Oh, we look like we're walking in love. People might even mistaken us to be devout Christians. But secretly, we're riding dirty. Because we're being deceived by empty words. Determining that it's okay to live together out of wedlock. But of course, deep down we know that it isn't. That's why we conceal our sexual immorality and secrecy. We don't talk about it. We get all sneaky, laying low so people think we're good. It's also why we conceal our covetousness or our greed and lust for money and all that it brings. It's why we clean up our corrupt talk whenever we come to church on Sundays, but then engage in filthy, foolish talk, crude jokes in the locker rooms of our lives the rest of the week. And it's because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So now this is where we get to the consequences, the sobering part, the wrath of God. Because as we learned a few weeks back, wrath is explosive, violent agitation. It is also a form of anger that exhibits itself in punishment, meaning the anger itself is punishment to all those around it. So there are real consequences to wrath. Now it's important that we start by differentiating the wrath of man from the wrath of God. First, the wrath of man almost always leads to sin. Remember, anger is a razor's edge. We sit at the top of it. We should be angry at our sin, but we seldom are. Instead, we actually allow anger to lead to sin. But of course, God is holy, so his wrath never leads to sin. It is always targeted at sin. Second, the wrath of man tends to come out whenever we feel we've been wronged. Or typically, whenever someone does something that we don't like, we bring down our wrath on them, don't we? So it's almost never justified, because it's really all about us, or how we feel about something. But God's wrath is always justified, because it's always out of His holiness and in response to sin. Third, when man unleashes wrath, it typically makes him both judge and executioner. Think about when you engage in some road rage. You immediately determine that the other person is wrong, you're sitting in judgment on them, and then you mete out their punishment or their sentence. You think they belong in that ditch up ahead, don't you? Right? That's what we do. But Scripture makes it clear that we're not to judge and we're not to avenge. We're to leave that to God, because God is the judge of all. So His wrath is legit. Man's wrath is not. Of course, the wrath of God is not something you hear preached in churches these days. And that's because people might leave. They don't like to hear this kind of stuff. But here's the thing. It's asserted in the Bible from beginning to end. So if you don't believe in the wrath of God, then you actually don't believe in the truth of Scripture that we find in our Bibles. 
You cannot pick and choose the scripture that you like. That's why we go line by line here at Four Mile. It forces us to confront it all. And to be clear, I'm not teaching God's wrath to be all fire and brimstone on you. Paul is. I'm just conveying his message. So when does this wrath come? Well, the word comes is in the continuous present tense. So it means it comes now and for all eternity. So the wrath of God comes both now and for all eternity upon the sons of disobedience. So first of all, hear this loud and clear. God pours out his wrath on the disobedient, on those who sin. He pours it out on sin. We saw it first in the garden. So God actually unleashed his wrath at the point of the very first recorded sin. For example, God declared that women would suffer during childbirth and be submissive to men. God then cursed the ground so that all mankind would suffer, toiling against the thorns and thistles of life. And then he declared that all men would return to the dust from which he created them. So God's wrath explains why we suffer from the loss of loved ones and suffer from disease and sickness. It's a result of God's wrath meted out on the very first or original sin and on all generations since. So yeah, the wrath of God is real. It's what led him to flood the earth back in Noah's day. It's why David's family suffered so intensely after his adulterous and murderous affair. We think about all the suffering in our lives. It's all a result of sin. And you may say, well, that sounds like a bunch of Old Testament stuff. Things are different now on this side of the cross. Well, ask Ananias and Sapphira how they feel about your position because they were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit when they withheld money from the church. So make no mistake about it. God's wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience. His wrath is poured out on all sin. So in that sense, we all bear the consequences of his wrath because we all die now. It's the curse of sin. And we'll all suffer from God's wrath on generations of sin. So this is the truth. Sin leaves scars. So now, who are these sons of disobedience? Well, anyone living in unrepentant, habitual sin. All those on that wide, dark path up there. Because they have not repented and placed their faith in Jesus. They are not walking with His Holy Spirit. And unless they repent of their sin and are born again, they will also experience God's wrath for all eternity. In the lake of fire, suffering intense torment, and eternal destruction away from God's presence. Paul explains it clearly in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So this is what God's wrath looks like for those on that wide, dark path whenever Christ returns. A fire pit of never-ending torment and misery. Eternal destruction. 
Now for those who have repented, placed their faith in Jesus, been born again, those who are on that narrow, well-lighted path to holiness, walking hand in hand with the Holy Spirit, well, they won't experience God's wrath in eternity because they're among His beloved children. Look at how Paul goes on to wrap up this teaching to the church in Thessalonica. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So by God's grace, those who have been born again will not experience God's wrath for eternity. Rather, they will spend eternity in His holy city of never-ending glory, marveling at His presence. So now wait a second. I thought you said God's wrath is poured out on all sin. Well, yeah. So even though I'm born again and I'm on that narrow path, I still sin. So what about my sin? Well, his wrath was still poured out. It was just poured out on Jesus instead of you. In Scripture, we find several instances where God's wrath is associated with arrows. So we can think about these arrows carrying out God's wrath against the sins of the world. But you see, the cross of Christ bore the wrath of those arrows for the sins of God's beloved children. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus and have been born again, Jesus took the wrath for your sin. Think about that. And that is why sin is so repulsive for believers. It's why we simply can't stand it when we sin. Because we know That God's wrath is intense, it's severe, it's explosive, it's violent, and it's justified. We deserve it. And because Jesus loves us that much that he chose to bear God's wrath for us on that cross. It's why Paul taught us a few weeks back that a believer's life must be marked by thanksgiving. See, do you see now why we operate out of a deep sense of gratitude It's how we're motivated to live this life of holiness. Just look at what Jesus did for us. Look at that picture up there. He endured all of that for you and for me. So faced with the knowledge of this truth, how could we ever become complacent about the sin in our lives? How could we not immediately repent anytime we step off that narrow, well-lighted path to holiness. Do you see the power in repentance? It unleashes resurrection power in our lives. Repentance and forgiveness are amazing gifts that God has given to us. We must employ them often in our lives. It's why we can't be riding dirty, living in unrepentant sin, like those sons of disobedience, engaging in sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. You see, sin has consequences. 
It leaves scars. Look at what it did to Jesus on that cross. Look at what it's done to wreck so many of our lives. People, sin leaves scars. We must repent of it. It's also why God's beloved children should expect to receive His discipline whenever we engage in sin. Now, God's wrath is different from God's discipline. Hebrews 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. So how does His discipline work out in our lives? Well, it starts with that pit in our stomach. When the Holy Spirit convicts us that we're sinning, it can also manifest itself in physical suffering as we misuse our body. We suffer for it when we do that. If we engage in sexual immorality, we may deal with mental anguish, shame, depression, disease. When we fail to repent and forgive, we will suffer the pain and torment of broken relationships. So God's discipline comes in the form of agony, distress, affliction, anxiety, depression, gut-wrenching remorse. Of course, we experience His discipline, though, because He loves us. And He uses us to call us back into repentance. So we must never resent His discipline. It means we're His beloved children. Friends, sin is nasty. It's foul. It's repulsive stuff. We need to start seeing it for what it is. And we need to keep our spoon out of that bowl up there. So don't be deceived with empty words that sin doesn't come with consequences. God's wrath is real. It has implications both now and for all eternity. And certainly, we must never miss how much God loves us. Just look at the price His Son paid for our sins. That's perhaps the most important takeaway from today. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at Your perfect plan for carrying out your work of salvation to completion. Would you strengthen us so that we might not be deceived by empty words? Sanctify us. Make us more holy. And when we fall, thank you for disciplining us to the point of repentance so that we might progress in holiness, so that we might spend eternity in the holy city of your glory. We ask all these things and whatever else you see that we need. For Jesus' sake. Amen. 